I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare, anyone? Hi, listeners. It's Courtney here. If you are listening to this episode after 2023, you might be wondering, who is this Corey Lee Smith host? When we started this podcast, I went by that stage name, Corey. I've chosen to leave my stage name, and as you know, I now go by Courtney. But before you enjoy past Elise and past Courtney's episodes in our back catalog, I wanted to clarify the name switch. Now that I've set that straight, I invite you to sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Hello, listeners. This is Courtney. Elise and I are so thrilled to continue bringing episodes of Shakespeare Anyone to listeners like you for free. We do this out of our love for Shakespeare, theater making, scholarship, and decentering dead white men. We put a lot of hard work into research, recording, editing, and generally producing a podcast. With that said, I'm here to remind you all that we have a Patreon page if you want to support our current work and our future goals that we believe Patreon will help us achieve. We've created a variety of support levels and continue to create exclusive bonus content for our patrons on a monthly basis. Our bonus content so far includes Shakespeare Stuff We Loved This Month posts, where we share the Shakespeare-related products we are obsessing over. Not only that, but we already launched bonus episodes. One is an extension on our conversation with Dr. Simone Chess about John Lilly's Galatea and Early Modern Trans Studies. And the second is a conversation with special guest Stephanie from Protest Too Much Podcast, in which we review Joel Cohen's Macbeth starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand. Elise and I also discuss Shakespeare-adjacent content, like movies, TV shows, books, to name a few, and share those conversations exclusively to Patreon. These are incredible conversations you can unlock as a patron. We also have plans for additional bonus episodes, including more special guests, more film reviews, and even an Ask Us Anything. Distinguished patrons even receive exclusive voting power and snail mail. If you would like to join us and support the production of this podcast, or just check out the Shakespeare-themed names we've given the support levels, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link will also be in our episode descriptions. And if you like what you hear, Elise and I would greatly appreciate it if you could rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. When you're done, be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter, and then tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertisement. Thank you for listening and all of the support you give us and the podcast. Now, onto the episode. Hi, Elise. Hi, Corey. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing fine. 
I do want to say, listeners, I hope that my sound is okay for this episode. I just moved apartments and I'm still trying to figure out where is my recording space. So fingers crossed. But if there is weird sound on my end, I'm going to solve this problem. I just wanted to give a disclaimer. No rude comments in the reviews. Thank you very much. <laughs> You're doing your best having I literally just, just moved, moved in. Yeah, I am. That's how I've been. We are actually now going to dive into something super exciting, and that is our first topic for the King Lear series of um, of our podcast. Yes. And today we are going to be talking about misogyny and sexism in King Lear. And oh boy, is there a lot of misogyny in this play. Before we talk about the resources that we found and the things that we read about and listened to, um, let's talk about our general reactions because this is actually my first time engaging with King Lear. So mm -hmm. I didn't know what to expect. And I will say that up front, I am not a King Lear stan. I love the play, but the man King Lear, I the don't, character. the character King Lear, I don't stan him. I think he's complex and I think it's fascinating. But as far as like, do I root for him? It's really hard for me to root for King Lear. I agree. I also found it interesting and I have engaged with this play before. Just reading the pure text was in 2022 was a little bit rough. Mm -hmm. You know, I cared much more about some other characters in the plot than I did about the title character. Yeah. So now that I've gotten that out of the way, we have gotten that out of the way. Let's talk about the sexism and misogyny that we saw in this play. Right off the bat, having done our research for our previous two plays, I know we both picked up on some patrilineal anxiety. and Quite a bit of that. I mean, the play starts off with, let's introduce my bastard son. I'm Gloucester. Yeah. And not only that, I'm going to talk about my bastard son while he's standing next to me, and then I'm going to introduce you to my bastard son. Also, I'm going to blame his mother for the fact that he is a jerk to me. While also bragging that it was a very sexy time that we had, his mother and I. Ugh, Gloucester. And then we get into the splitting of the kingdom into three and giving it to daughters by Lear. Yeah, versus the traditional concept of everything going to sons, the firstborn mm -hmm. son. Right. Throughout the play, we get these parallels of Lear and his daughters versus Gloucester and his sons. Yeah. Both get two sides of a single masculine psyche. They are both fathers whose wives are absent from the play. And then their children are polarized into good and evil. Yeah. And their attitudes towards sexuality are also polarizing. Yeah. You got your very chaste, pure children and your not chaste and pure children, your sexually active children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is ridiculous anyways, because the whole point of the role of a woman in early modern England was you are like a sister and a daughter and a wife. Mm -hmm. So this double-edged sword of the sexually active daughters, the ones who are married, being the evil ones, but they are literally doing their job. Like their duty is to get married and become wives. And then mm -hmm. because they're daughters of a king... They're supposed to rule the kingdom or at least, you know, semi-jointly with their husbands. So they're kind of doing what they're supposed to do. Right. It's also interesting to note that Gloucester has committed adultery, mm -hmm. admittedly 
So yeah, it's not his first son. It's his second son who is born out of wedlock with another woman. Mm -hmm. He's actually unique in Shakespeare in that his adultery has some tragic consequences. Mm -hmm. The consequence is not at all the impact it has on his wife or the unnamed partner he had this illegitimate child with. But the consequences are about how his illegitimate son ends up seeking retribution and revenge on his father. Yeah, it gets him directly. Right. And in medieval Europe and England, blinding and castration were punishment for sexual crimes. Mm. So Glotzer does get punished for what he does, but not as much as I think the daughters do. Yeah, exactly. And there is a early modern text that in my reading was quoted. And this sets up essentially the whole conundrum of what Lear and his daughters are going through with patrilineage and inheritance. Mm -hmm. So a Thomas Bentley wrote, The monument of matrons containing seven several lamps of virginity, and that's from 1582. And in mm -hmm. this, I don't know if it's a book or a pamphlet, but he writes, quote, That she, knowing herself to be thy wedded, doth believe to be quit of all she oweth, esteeming very little that she hath here beneath, she forsaketh her old father and all the goods that he giveth her for her husband's sake, unquote. So what this quote is essentially saying is that what you do when you are a daughter is become a wife, and from there mm -hmm. you are prioritized from following your father to your husband. And in yes. King Lear, there's a very interesting thing that Lear does in which Lear expects his three daughters, two of whom are already married, to have love for him in a way that is not proper for this time period. He's asking yes. them to have full love for him when in reality, during early modern era, during Shakespeare's time, you were supposed to go, oh, I'm married. I'm no longer devoted my to you. My family is now my husband's family. My family is my husband's family. And in this way, Lear sets up this catastrophic thing where he, A, doesn't have sons, and so he's giving his inheritance to daughters, and then mm -hmm. B, he's expecting his daughters to dote on him and love him in a way that was not... That's more like a wife yes. than, than like a daughter should be. That pamphlet came up in my reading as well. Did it? it cool. Did. Okay. Yeah. As I mentioned, like, this is what was normed in mm -hmm. this time for women. Mm -hmm. So, like, Lear asking, putting his daughters in this, in my reading, it was referred to as incestual mm -hmm. relationship, mm -hmm. is, like, really not great. <laughs> <laughs> However, I do want to point out that, like, when that happens, like, as a counterpoint, like, I want to talk about these women for just a second. Okay, let's do it. All three women are shown to be really effective rulers and have their own wills and own agency. Mm -hmm. But the men around them are really unable to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And, for example, the rule of the daughters of Regan and Goneril like, there's no transition period. We don't see any political upheaval coming from Regan and Goneril being in power. No. And Cordelia is able to lead an army with no question. Yeah, her husband goes back to France. She stays. So this is a world where women can be leaders. Yeah. A quote from one of my readings from Catherine Schwartz's Fallen Out with My More Headier Will, Dislocation of King Lear. One, She points out that all of the negative truisms of femininity 
shrewdness, scheming, expediency, sexual calculation, and the priority of ends over means mirror the practical habits of state. Mm. These women, for all of the misogynist tropes that they inhabit, it's what also makes them effective rulers and really good at their jobs. Right. It's women embodying male court politic attitudes and behaviors and calculations. Yes. Yeah. And in Lear, the proximity to women or the feminine is really the problem. And misogyny is about the appearance of control. So the men who sever themselves from women in Lear succeed. Mm. The ones who are allied with the women fail. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cornwall dies. He gets yeah. stabbed by the servant. And it's because he was aligned with Gonroll and Regan. Albany, he shifted away from them. Literally. Mm -hmm is accused of being effeminate by Goneril uh -huh. and over the course of the play distances himself so much and becomes so stoic and more violent that he goes from this effeminacy to rejecting women as like fiends and temptresses. And at the end, it's him, Kent, who is incredibly stoic and yeah. like a stereotypical mas masculine man, a stereotype of masculinity. Yeah. And then there's Edgar, who is hostile in how he speaks about mm -hmm. women and how he treats women. And those three are left standing at the end because, in part, they have rejected or avoided female sexuality. And the only woman that any of them seem to have any interest in is Cordelia, who embodies this proper, chaste uh, femininity. Yeah. I, I got another quote for you. Yeah. Go ahead. Bring it on. This is from Peter L. Rudnitsky, I hope I'm saying that right. The Dark and Vicious Place, The Dread of the Vagina in King Lear. Great title, by the way. Yes. Quote, that women should be chaste, silent, and obedient is a cornerstone of patriarchal doctrine. And Lear's praise of Cordelia ironically attests to the shackles he has sought to impose on her. Now, this is where Rudnitsky does make a note that you know, they agree with other feminist critics that we should actually interrogate the moral judgments that define Goneril and Regan as monstrous. Shakespeare's still not not a misogynist. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's you 100. Know? Yeah. So things can be both. You know, there can exist this whore Madonna complex and Regan and Goneril can, in our modern lens, we can recognize them as not monsters right. at all. And I will say from my experience reading just solely the text, I felt for Goneril and Regan up until about the time where they actually do a 180 and are becoming mm -hmm. hostile, aggressive, and violent. And their goals are more like, let's more squash, like yeah, let's squash out any competition we have, anyone who's a threat. I think it's, I don't remember if it's Goneril or Regan, but one of them says like, we should get rid of our enemies before they do something to harm us. Basically the idea that she's saying, like we should be mm -hmm. proactive in this way that's very like not feminine in the traditional early modern sense. And that's around the time when I started going yeah. like, oh wow, they're they're being very monstrous in this moment. But I don't think that they were monstrous up until about that point. Like I Right. Yeah. Yeah. Rudnitsky also notes that there's this dilemma of the elder daughters. They're very effective, but they can't seem to achieve their political aims without Allying themselves with Edmund. Mm -hmm. And Edmund is kind of this very distilled, ultimate masculine figure in his hypersexuality that comes from his father and his violence. And so, in a way, like Goneril and Regan, while they are these emancipated women, 
they're still sort of in this patriarchal world. They're kind of evil and dangerous. And when Edmund kills Cordelia, it's this ultimate masculinity killing femininity. Mm. That's poetic in this like binary world. It's a very poetic thing to write. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's also interesting to note that the portrayal of Cordelia and the death of Cordelia is unique to Shakespeare. There are earlier versions of Lear. Oh, not written by Shakespeare, written by other people before this play. Yeah. And one of the source materials for Lear is this anonymous uh, story called The True Chronicle History of King Lear, L-E-I-R. Mm-hmm. And it and other plays, stories, poems derived from it have Cordelia live and succeed Lear on they the do. throne successfully. Yeah. So this image of Cordelia dying and being killed by a hyper-masculine Edmund, us getting this kind of reverse Pieta image of Lear holding her at the end, is unique to Shakespeare. Right. And likely comes out of something early modern in like the discourse surrounding early modern English gender roles, sexuality, mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But I was just thinking that Goneril and Regan also die. And they are monstrous, like both ways that you can view femininity, either the whore or the Madonna, both of those versions, the monstrous and the chaste die. Like no, none of the women in this play live to the end. They all die. Right. And like I said before, the three men who are left at the end are the ones who have distanced themselves the furthest. And even the two that we talked about in the beginning Lear and Gloucester, who start off as these masculine men, they, through the course of the play, are feminized Mm. before their deaths. Mm -hmm. So back to my reading by Peter L. Rudnitsky. In this article, he talks a lot about the imagery of the play, and he connects the blinding of Gloucester and the missing eyeballs and the bloody rings that are left Mm -hmm. over to one Oedipus, yeah. who is also a character in classic theater who is blinded and has some messed up familial relations. Yeah, that's an understatement, if ever there was one. <laughs> and Rudnitsky says that Edgar, in his final lines where he recounts to Albany how he became the guide of his Oedipus father, he says, and in this habit, met I my father with his bleeding rings, their precious stones now lost. Mm. And the phrase precious stones refers to the eyeballs, but it also carries this testicular imagery. What? Really? Yes, like testicles. Go on. Explain yourself. Okay. (laughs) So we call testicles stones, Mm -hmm. right? Like in slang, that is a thing that existed back Mm -hmm. then. And so it draws this parallel between them. And then the bloody rings, um, the holes that are... What is left without these testicles, the absence of Uh such, is a vagina. Uh Uh-huh. So Gloucester's blinding is therefore a symbolic castration, which leaves him with with a vagina, or rather two, on his face instead of these testicular eyeballs. And we think about what eyeballs look like when they are pulled out. It is kind of Uh similar. And... Blindness, again, back to Oedipus, it has been this symbolic representation of castration since the Oedipus myth, and it's just very like explicit <laughs> here. And then, mm-hmm. um, similarly, when Lear encounters Kent in the stocks, 
in the latter half right, of the play. Right. Lear wells up with the same femininity that he has repudiated and pushed away. He speaks of a mother swelling up to his heart with climbing so sorrow. That's like the mother. Like the uterus wandering yes. up into his chest, which is what they believed hysteria was. Was, because that's what the mother, as we talked about this during Macbeth, mm-hmm. the mother was a term used in early modern medical and general parlance in which the womb itself affected the mind and the body of the possessor into hysteria. Right, because it starts wandering through the body. And so in this case, it's going all the way up, 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 and this is part of the cause of his madness. Something very female. This is what is causing him to cry. Mm. He is saying, I am a male hysteric after he earlier in this play called crying effeminate. He did. He said he would rather do a bunch of things before he cried. He will not weep. Yeah. Right. And now he is saying, I literally have hysteria. He's saying, my uterus is (laughs) in my chest. Uh Uh-huh. Seeing you, Ken. So both of these men who start the play as very masculine virulent men in charge of their family in charge of they are feminized in their downfall Mm -hmm. that's fascinating there's also imagery of the vagina so you've got like the masculine one and the feminine one so in act one when lear says nothing will come of nothing nothing will come of nothing invokes a feminine line of heredity as null because nothing was the euphemism for vagina so that becomes a reference for the female Literally no thing. Yes. So nothing will come of nothing. And Cordelia is also not a son. Yeah. Yeah. And what is interesting to note, going back to that patrilineal, that idea of nothing will come of nothing, at the end of this play, all of the patrilineal anxieties that these men have had over the course of the entire play are made into reality Mm. because at the end of the play all of the women who could have borne sons to continue the royal line are dead Dead. yes and there is a moment too where uh when lear is so pissed off at goneril he is so cruel to her and he like wishes that she will not be able to have kids mentions her organ her sex organs and um is basically like cursing her ability to have children and that's such a big early modern female identity or the perceived societal one but then in doing so lear also is stopping the ability for his lineage to continue so he is doing Mm -hmm. it to himself in a way like he has all this anxiety and his anger towards goneril is evoked in like a curse towards her inability to even mother but it's like dude which in turn which in turn is cursing you Himself and his, his own, own li- line. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Well, it's funny because so much of what goes on in this play really, to me, stems from Lear's decisions. He's the catalyst for all of this because of his own patrilineal anxiety, because he is within the context of early modern England, not following the protocols for early modern like inheritance and lineage and all that with like, you have no sons and so you're going to pass it down to your daughters. But you're going to expect your daughters to also be loyal to you and love you even when they have husbands. And so this is very much a curse that he puts on himself as he devolves into, quote unquote, madness and is dethroned. Yeah. And how much of this is his daughter's fault? For a play with a good amount of sexism and uh, sexist, misogynist opinions towards these women, how much of it really is their fault? 
I don't think a lot. I think they deal with the lot that is done them. I mean, we can talk about, you know, who was right. Was Cordelia right to not play Lear's game? Mm. Or Goneril and Regan, they just knew what the game was and played it well. Right. Really, the fault, though, is Lear for trying to manipulate his children like that. Right. And yeah. when we talk about Cordelia, this whole, what shall Cordelia do? Love and be silent? Here, Cordelia, in her asides, she wants to conform to the early modern ideal of silence for women, especially in court or public spaces. And what Lear is asking all three of them to do is to step outside of the silence Mm -hmm. is the best action for women and asking them publicly to state their love for him and flatter him. And so she's basically being pushed to make a decision to step outside of how females should be in court, according to that time period. And then she's punished for it. Right. Yeah. And really, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't, because we see that Regan and Goneril are also punished for accepting the terms of this game that Lear sets up. And, you know, he even says that his expectation was really to put all of that daughter-mother relationship on Cordelia. Yeah. Because he says he planned to give her the best third of the kingdom and for it to be his nursery as he grew old. Right. Lear's fool makes repeated comments about Lear's decision to treat his daughters like mothers. The fool reminds Lear throughout the text that he has this double inversion of patrilineage and gender, you know, Mm -hmm. giving daughters what sons should be given. Right. And uh, the inversion of daughters and mothers. I think it's even more like, Uh not even just what sons should be given, because we see that at this time, if there was a male heir, it would go to him first. We do see, you know, women heirs. It's more like you put your daughters in your wife's place yeah and in your mother's place yeah and that's weird it's very weird that's inappropriate yeah uh the fool says that lear is a king being ruled by his own female offspring when quote thou mates thy daughters thy mothers thou gavest them the rod and puts down thine own breeches unquote so lear right. is putting aside this masculinity and he's being ruled by women and specifically his daughters inappropriately I think it's less that he's being ruled by women and more that, like, you've put yourself in a relationship that a father should not be in with his daughters. Yeah. No child should have to parent a parent. Right. And then when um, Goneril and Regan, I think it's Regan, when Regan clearly says, like, you need to be with Goneril because she knows how best to take care of you, he gets mad at her. He's like, no. Yeah. I won't be told what to do and how to do it. And he acts like a child. And he acts like a child. While insisting that he's also their father. Being taken care of. As if he was the child to their motherhood, yeah. Right, yeah. While trying to remain father and king in name. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, I know you read about some performances of Lear. I did. So I've seen some performances of Lear. I feel like they've always just been very like classic interpretations of this. This is anecdotal, purely my experience. Mm-hmm. Go on. <laughs> I've seen a trend of late productions will kind of armchair diagnose Lear's madness as dementia or Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. There's sometimes she, I've seen a female Lear, Mm -hmm. that there is a uh, mental illness, like a diagnosable reason for the madness. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what I've seen in modern, like in the past, I'd say 10 years. Mm -hmm. They're taking modern uh, understandings of science and mental illness and what we know now and trying to apply it to Lear. Right. And excuse Lear's behavior by saying he's this 
old man who is not in his right mind anymore. And really, my thought in some ways is, is he not just having a tantrum, like being very melodramatic and expecting way too much from the people around him? And I know he says he's going through madness, but can we really diagnose that from the words that Shakespeare gives us? And Mm -hmm. should we? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I didn't read about that. I mean, maybe we can save that for another conversation. Yeah. yeah. But um, yes, I did read about some performances. And I will say I'm saving my viewing of Lear until after we finish the series, because I like reading it and talking Mm -hmm. about it without performances in my mind. But I read Philippa Kelly's See What Breeds About Her Heart, King Lear, Feminism and Performance. So this focused mainly on performances, um, specifically from a feminist lens. And she specifically looked at some feminist studies and specific performances. Tell me more. Yeah, she did open this article by quoting Warren Mitchell. Warren Mitchell, very famous Shakespeare actor, when he was discussing his 1978 performance of King Lear, he said, quote, I carried Cordelia on in those days, and she was an enormous lady. There were three ladies there when I got to the first rehearsal, two tiny ones and one big one, and I thought, I hope one of the tiny ones is Cordelia. It wasn't. It was the big one, unquote. Yeah, I see that face. Ew. Mm -hmm. That was something that he said about his fellow actor, that he wanted her to be tiny one. Just admit that you don't lift, bro. I know, right? Uh, And in this, the performance that he had, the 1978 performance, I guess his Lear, quote, dragged Cordelia by the rope that was around her neck, and my poor fool is hanged, unquote. Uh, if you could see, listeners. Oh, God, I just, I just can't, like, the violence mm-hmm. in pulling someone on with a rope mm-hmm. that has been used to unalive them mm-hmm. is because you... <laughs> are not creative enough to find another solution. Mm-hmm. Like, just put it blame, like, there's other solutions. Right. You're just not creative enough. And you are unable to admit that you are too physically weak to carry somebody, your fellow actor, and you blame it on them. Yeah. Instead of being like, we found a unique solution because I was not strong enough to carry this person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And author Carol Rudder suggests that resting out the patriarchal lens for a feminist perspective can complicate stereotypical gendered scenes like these death scenes in which mm-hmm. Cordelia is dragged out with a rope. But in order to do that, you need to have smart actors who can, quote, collaborate with Shakespeare to author themselves, unquote. So like you're saying, at least like other solutions. And um, in Sarah Werner's study of feminist performance, she suggests that the feminist performance generally refers to, quote, those actors, directors, and performances which strive to question received assumptions of Shakespeare's depiction of and appropriateness for women, unquote. So the idea is like with how even in 1978, a Lear dragged in a Cordelia by the neck with a rope if we have more flexibility in our perceptions, then maybe we wouldn't make these kinds of decisions. And and it does bring the question that we had in Macbeth, which is like, what is the play versus 
what is the academic and cultural lexicon surrounding Lear that informs people's mm-hmm. decisions when making this play, when putting this play on, having a production of King Lear. Yeah. Philippa Kelly then goes on to talk about different types of performances of different styles and different choices made during performances. And here are some examples. I'll just kind of go through them of different kinds of uh, Lear's, Goneril's, Regan's, Cordelia's that have existed recently. So uh, for Lear that she talked about, I'm not really going to go into them very much, but while many of the more recent productions of the play have emphasized Lear's domineering qualities, like the Royal Shakespeare Company's 1976 London production, his childishness in the Richard Ayer's 1997 London production, and his headstrong willfulness, uh, the uh, Gail Edwards' 1998 version at the State Theatre Company, or his unattractive irascibility from the Australia's 1998 Bell Shakespeare Company production, some have used emblematic stage machinery to augment verbal challenges to the idea of an old man's poignantly heroic journey. But then there are more alarming ones when it comes to the women, the female characters. There are various Goneril and Regan interpretations, like uh, Dame Judi Dench, when she played Regan, she chose to have a stutter, and she only stuttered in Lear's presence. And uh, he showed impatience at her disability. And so this implied that her filial ingratitude resulted not from a monstrous nature, but from parental tyranny. He was the one mm-hmm. that sparked this in her. You know, he, she was terrified of him to the point that her stutter comes back. But, you know, that could also be ableist. So, you know. Yeah. And then there was also a San Francisco Shakespeare Festival 2001 performance that emphasize the older sister's femininity as a form of resistance to this tyranny. So like Goneril like would shrink away from her father and weep silently and Regan was very like fragile and she used her femininity to rebuke Lear. So all three of these Dame Judy Dench and these Goneril and Regans are more frightened of their father. So that is a different mm-hmm. power dynamic. That's like helping to motivate why they're trying to appease him. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And then there is a State Theatre Company of South Australia performance where Gail Edwards directed the older sisters as less the victims of their father's tyranny than as proactive women eager to get on. So Goneril and Regan appeared perfectly reasonable in their protestations about the behavior of Lear and his hundred nights. And Lear is the one who violently overreacted. Mm-hmm. You also have different versions of Cordelia. One version played by Anne-Marie Duff. She was highly manipulative and arrogant and spoiled, expecting to get away with denying her father's wishes in the play's first scene. And that was what sparked rage. Um, and then you have the Ayers direction of Cordelia as a spoiled child. There's another one that I want to bring up. In a 1999 production for Washington's The Shakespeare Theater, Monique Holt played Cordelia as a deaf mute signing her words to the fool to speak. I believe Oregon Shakespeare Festival did a very similar... Ah. It was either Cordelia or the fool. Okay. One of was them. Was deaf mute. Mm-hmm. One of them, yeah. Yeah. And while this was an interesting way of assigning causation to the events of 1-1, Cordelia literally mishears her father and so cannot give him what he wants. What this does is this actually robs Cordelia of a sense of agency because the conventional uh, misunderstood victim was replaced 
by a victim of the frailty of language as a mode for communication. So it's an interesting choice. It does give a different meaning to Cordelia and Lear's relationship and what happens to her. Mm -hmm. There are yeah. there are so many ways it, outside of the text. It's interesting to think of mm -hmm. to think of how long has this Lear being brash and rash and kind of what we see thrown at Cordelia. How often have Regan and Goneril also been right. on the receiving end of that? And have they do is the way that they move through the world a reaction and a survival mechanism right. to that we don't know a whole lot about what happened before the beginning of the play mm -hmm. right so if you choose to have these characters make decisions with their body language and the relationship that creates a whole different family dynamic where rather than Lear being the one who's totally manipulated by monstrous daughters you have two daughters who have a tyrant father yeah you know the idea of like generational trauma being present yeah in this family mm -hmm. and that's what's driving the daughter's actions right. and also why maybe the husbands don't exactly understand what's going on exactly and that is you know you can use a feminist lens to draw this kind of relationship between the family and that's a more complicated relationship mm -hmm. and a more complicated telling of the text what if we don't try to excuse Lear's behavior but if we instead try to explain and justify the daughter's yeah. behaviors yeah rather than um having the minor characters just kind of be minor characters elevating them and giving their them mm -hmm. more motive and more complexity so that it's a more well-rounded story i think it's an interesting question to ask like who in this situation is really being victimized is it the old man if it's the old man then is he maybe like not in his full faculties anymore is he being taken advantage of if he is then he's trying to take advantage of or browbeat his daughters yeah. into that as fully grown women they may not want to be a part of exactly and it can be very hard to find that kind of a of a telling if you're not expanding the perspectives when you get to the text and you put it on the stage yeah i'm sure we're going to get to a lot of different versions of this play when we get to our wrap-up. So I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. But I found this article and I was like, wow, there's there's a lot of uh, different ways that you can view the daughters based on the lens in which you're approaching the text, yeah. which is a very obvious statement to make. But here we are having a 1978 performance where the man playing, the male actor playing the titular character is upset that one of the women is larger than the other two. And then he ends up dragging her on stage so we're not that far away from that perspective when we come up with Lear so yeah it's also like it's the 1970s I doubt she was that much bigger like it we are still not doing great in terms of body diversity yeah. on professional stages so yeah so what does it really mean especially when it comes to size especially when it comes to size for women Mm -hmm. In ingenue roles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The last two that I want to talk about, and I'm re really not going to say too much about them. They're just interesting decisions that were made because we're talking about misogyny and, you know, sexism. There are two leers that were performed by female actors. Mm -hmm. And one of them was a Helena Couthausen's production at London's Young Vic. And this one, Kauthausen said that she did not have a feminist agenda at all. It just happened that her mother had recently died. 
and King Lear's concern with age and power was thus uppermost in her mind at the time. She said that, quote, we live in a patriarchal society and Shakespeare referred to patriarchal society and therefore made Lear a man. But the play itself, the whole premise and the way it links with something really primeval and old and ancient in us to the idea of life and those who give us life, I tried to respond to that because that's the way the play hit me. I had a strong sense of seeing the whole universe and my understanding of who I was or my mother's understanding of who she was collapsing because there was this massive changeover. It was this terrible injustice of nature, the terrible cruelty that you can say things that are natural and yet they seem so incredibly violent and cruel, unquote. Kauthausen's casting of Catherine Hunter was less concerned with replacing a male Lear than was simply playing the role as it had always been meaningful to her. So it wasn't about, mm. I'm putting a, a female actor into this male role. That kind of reminds me of when you played Macbeth. Yeah. We're not focusing on this as like a woman playing the masculine, but what is this? We're, we're just interested in this character yeah. being a woman. I've been part of a production of Lear that also had a female Lear. And again, like it was not like we're trying to make a feminist message. It was about how do we explore the relationship between mothers and daughters? Mm. Mm -hmm. And it was more about like, let's make the parallel between fathers and sons with Gloucester and his sons and then mothers and daughters mm -hmm. with Lear and the daughters. Yeah. And if you come in it from uh, with the decision to cast in this way or to look at the text and not be quite so on the nose about about it. What does that lens do to informing the text and the production that's going to be put on stage? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, especially in a play where so much of it is patrilineal, so much of it is daughters overpowering or daughters taking the role of mother for a father. Like, it's in the text, but it doesn't have to be limited to just this traditional casting decision. So what does, right? you know, yeah, that's really cool for productions. Yeah. And what in the play lends itself to it being a different gender or cast non-traditionally now. Right. I think another thing that you mentioned with the Young Vic production and the production that I was involved in that had female leers, I think you talked about briefly like aging as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that our modern culture, the patriarchal culture has created such an anxiety about feminine aging Mm -hmm. that I can definitely see how these directors, these production companies also were like, this is also a thing that we can explore with women now because the patrilineal anxiety that is on the page is not as big of an issue now. But for Shakespeare's Lear, the anxiety about not having heirs, not knowing that the next generation is happening is a major concern. Mm -hmm. And certainly that it's like, his heirs are going to be from his daughters mm -hmm. is a big anxiety. And then it, the anxiety that is in the text lends itself well to being translated into an anxiety about aging in general Yeah, as a woman when the character is a woman. Yeah. Yeah, I see that. With all of the commercials for like mm -hmm. anti-aging and how to stay young yeah. and, how you know, all of the geared towards yeah. women who are aging. And while we know today that Lear could have tried to father somebody else, in Shakespeare's time, there was that concept of the ages of man and what was appropriate for men at each yeah. age. And so it was no longer, he has aged past the point where it is proper for him to father children. Mm -hmm. 
And therefore, now it all rests on his daughters and trying to get them married off, trying to set them up well so that their future generations can be better. So that is still that like anxiety about aging. And women, uh, female identifying actors can certainly, even if the text isn't talking about like having a child in your womb and birthing a child, identify with motherhood and fatherhood. And if you are going to have grandchildren and what that's going to look like, mm -hmm. it's not at all from the same, like you said, it's not the same thing where it's inheritance and it's titles, but it's still something that as people age and have kids, they want to have grandkids. Some of them want their family lines to continue. And that's relatable if you are a man or a woman or you're non-binary. Yeah. Yeah. The last Lear I want to talk about is in contrast to this Houtausen Lear. Maureen Shea's 1996 production for the Company of Women at Wesley College in Massachusetts. Maureen Shea's production was praised for the strength of its eponymous role and criticized for a flawed overall conception. So while it was being trumpeted for a female Lear, the production replicated the fundamental patriarchal assumption that the three daughters, unlike their father, need only be sketched out as victims or villains. So just because someone's doing female Lear doesn't mean it's inherently feminist. It can certainly be giving into the patriarchal assumptions, even if women are in charge. That's a really good spot to end it mm -hmm. on, I think. Yeah. Even if women are in charge, they can still be misogynists. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And with all of this patrilineage, patriarchy, gendered imagery, all of that, you know, yeah. how does one take that gendered assumption that Shakespeare's time had and make it relevant in the modern age? Right. Yeah. I have a great quote that I think really summarizes your point about Lear as a woman doesn't fix these problems in it. Mm-hmm. This is from Catherine Schwartz's Fallen Out with My More Headier Will, Dislocation in King Lear. When the misogynist repudiation of women succeeds, it connects subjects across ethical, emotional, and aesthetic boundaries, opposing transactional feminine volition to the stasis of masculine detachment. Mm. So when misogyny succeeds, it is everywhere and inescapable. And that is King Lear. Mm -hmm. Yep. That's yeah. Oh, oh boy. boy. Thank you for listening to this episode. Our kind listeners, we can no other answer make but thanks and thanks and ever thanks to our Patreon patrons, Clocky McDowell and Kristen Harrett. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash ShakespeareAnyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, 
Follow us on Instagram at ShakespeareAnyonePod or Twitter at ShakespeareAnyone. For Twitter, that's Shakespeare, any, and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Romeo and Juliet, Act 5, Scene 3, spoken by Page. He came with flowers to strew his lady's grave, and bid me stand aloof, and so I did.